ghosts, zombies, strange creatures. We think they exist. We believe they exist. But sometimes it doesn't matter if they exist because we put them into our stories that we share with each other. Ghosts in popular culture and legend. That's our topic tonight with our guest, Dr. June Pulliam. It's going to be one heck of a night with a lot of strange and unusual stuff to talk about. Episode 469 of Spooky South Coast starts right now. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and Stephanie Burke. And now I'm going to pull down, I'm going to pot down the theme song, turn that off, put that back in program, take it off audition, and turn it up. Boom. It's almost like I knew what I was doing. We are streaming live over YouTube. This is how we do the show now when the Red Sox are on the air. We begin it on YouTube and then move over to the WBSM Airwaves joining the show already in progress once the game is over. And we're also streaming on Facebook Live, but we're streaming audio only on Facebook Live because we're teasing you on Facebook Live. We want you to see it. We want you to know the show is on. We want you to know that we're discussing the paranormal, which is what we do each and every Saturday night. But we also want you to come and join us in the YouTube chat room and watch things in the chat room. And listen to the show and experience the show in with the chat room going on because it adds an extra dimension. It and, definitely does. And Stephanie is back I'm after back. a um, two-year absence. I, I feel like it has been, been a two while. years. It, it has been a while. I don't even know how long. Maybe a month? Uh, was it like... What was it? Like six weeks? We've, I, we've been counting. We've had you in counting the show. The days, counting really? the days. Really? Yes. I mean, uh, you know, a couple weeks were events. Oh, it wasn't right, right. Yeah, and and there was weeks that we weren't on, but I'm just, you know, it's been six weeks since the people have heard you. That's really sad. I heard a rumor that you were um, opening up chicken farms in Africa. What? That's not true. Who started that? I heard that rumor. Did you? Well, I guess it's not true. No, but or if it was true, you're back anyway, so it doesn't matter. I am. I have nothing to do with farm animals. I promise. No. No. If I could own a farm, I would, but no. Well, we'll we'll tell you the the story about that later. Okay, great. We don't want to make it seem like it was. And actually, <laughs> way to start the show off on a good note, Tim, because here I am getting accused of Trump bashing every week now via what? email, and now I just made a, a reference that people aren't going to get, and they're going to be like, "He said, built chicken farms in Africa. That's racist." Oh yeah, it's yeah. not. You're going down the tubes. That's not what I meant, and uh, I don't remember saying anything about Donald Trump, but that those two emailers really think that I did. I need to look for the second email because I need to know what happened. Well, maybe, I mean, I'm not going to read them on the air because it's some, not of worth them, it. yeah, some of them were kind of uh, rambling and but incoherent and accusatory. But being home and I open up my email, I start thinking, what in the world goes on while I'm away? One of the emails actually... Everything goes to hell. It does. It does. One of the emails actually like said that I don't have any business talking about politics. Oh. Um, well, apparently you don't know that I work here at WBSM doing another show in addition to this show. And guess what we talk about quite a bit on that program? Politics. Not to mention the many degrees that you hold in like journalism and stuff, but just saying. Yeah, but even that. like, I'm paid to come in here on Saturday mornings and talk about things like that. Or to write about them for so newspapers. <laughs> if I want to come in and m- make a few mentions, you know, it's going to happen. And this show is just as much about... Uh, 
the discussions that happen between us as it is about the topics that we have. So, you know, we never want to derail the subject matter and go off on a tangent, but sometimes people have opinions on things and they do come through. But at the same time, we're also intelligent human beings that get to talk about, like, current events and things like that rather than just paranormal. Sometimes the two of them are kind of in the same category. By the way, oh, you know when I mentioned it? I know when it came up. You know? It just dawned on me now. It's when I told everybody to run out and get a copy of Donald Trump Ghost Hunter. Yes. The book by Joey Hellenant. Is it? Yes. That's when we were talking about. All right. I don't, I don't want to give away the secret here, but Donald Trump didn't actually write the book. It's Duh. a, it's a book that somebody made up as a joke. So the discussion that we were having was probably in relation to that. That just popped into my head. I remember mentioning it on the air a couple of weeks see, ago. But see, that's where current events and paranormal combine. But at the same time, I, I sound like I'm just butthurt now because somebody sent us a couple of emails nah, complaining about, can I say butthurt on YouTube? I think I can, I right? I Everybody else does. I think you can. I, I think people have said worse on YouTube. I've said a lot worse. Hey, listen. Lot. Yes. As long as I sing Chocolate Rain, everything's good. At right? least you didn't get called ugly your first week <laughs> on a, radio. That's an old, <laughs> that's old, a, that's the oldest well, like, YouTube reference. That's why, that's why I made it. I think they just celebrated like the 10th anniversary of that video this week. Or last week. That's why Is I mentioned it. Really? That's why I brought it up. I thought yeah. it was older, maybe. I don't know. Dying Keyboard Cat. And- Keyboard Cat will never die though. Keyboard Cat exists. Lives, in, lives in, long in, in our hearts. Infinitum. So we do talk about the paranormal each and every Saturday night, and tonight we will be joined just a bit by our guest tonight, Dr. June Pulliam. Uh, She is an LSU professor of English, and she has a new book out called Ghosts in Popular Culture and Legend, and we'll talk about that, but just her wealth of knowledge in the world of uh, paranormal stories and horror, and just looking at some of the uh, books and articles and essays she's had published, this conversation is going to go all over the place. We're going to talk about a bunch of different topics and really get into some of the overall and overarching themes of these uh, entities and these elementals uh, elements of the paranormal that we'll talk about elementals. It's the same thing. I know, but uh, we will see. I don't. I don't really care how good I sound on YouTube. You can tell. I'm mailing it in until we go on the radio. <laughs> it's not true. Um, I would like to point out before we go any further that Ross left us a comment that says, "Let's make paranormal great again." <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, listen, and Matt can probably pull this up on the screen if he wants to, but you got to go to Amazon, all right? You got to search for Donald Trump. Just put in like a Donald Trump search and like a bunch of stuff's going to come up. The new book, Trump Revealed, will be the first thing to pop up. And that's where it, where it came up. We were talking about that book this morning on, on my morning show. And a few spots down from that is the most outstanding pair of Donald Trump socks you will ever see in your life. Like I'm going to order these. But I want to find Donald Trump socks and Hillary Clinton socks and just uh-huh. wear one of each. Okay. As a pair. <laughs> but I like it. Well, um, Gary Johnson, where are you going to wear that? I am a Red Hot Chili Peppers fan. Uh, but we will, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, I, what I want to do is, uh, <laughs> I want to. Jill Stein in your undies? Uh, uh, we're going to get the Jill Stein thong. Yeah. She's, but if I, <laughs> I don't even want to tell you what I'm getting for D's nuts. This is what we can do on YouTube. Live. We can. Are you, are you, well, you're voting for Harambe anyway, so. Oh my God, by the way, I just want to point out the, the music video drops Tuesday. I saw that. Yep. Uh, it's going to be I, ridiculous. I'm so excited about this. Uh, we, we will share that when it happens. It's from our buddy Ross Patterson, uh, who has a, a new video coming out, a tribute song for Harambe who's no longer with us, yet still leading Jill Stein in Texas. You know, 
I hate to admit it, but I had to Google the hashtag today because I'm a little out of the loop <laughs> and I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> we're we're in the loop, but we don't fully understand. Okay, it. cool. But, that, uh, that's kind of the gist that I got from Google. Is nobody really knows? It should be. Uh, it should. It should be pretty, pretty funny either way. Uh, so where was I going with that? I don't even remember. Oh, I was going to say I was going to wear one sock on one foot and one on the other, but I was going to wear the Donald Trump one on my left foot. And the Hillary Clinton, oh. my right one, just to mess yeah. with people, throw people off. Yeah, I like yeah. it. But I don't know <laughs> the Gary Johnson one. <laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, we will be joined in a few minutes by our guest, Dr. June Playum, and the show will suddenly become a lot classier. I promise. Uh, but there is one thing that I want to mention before we do that, and that is this Wednesday night. Stephanie's already. Hi. Stephanie's already going to start to. Shake and quiver when I start talking about this. I am. But this Wednesday night is the Ghost Hunters episode that was filmed at Fort Tabor, which should be your second appearance on national television. Yes. Which will be seen by far more people than the first. Which is terrifying. Which is no offense to uh, Destination America. They are a fine network. Yes, they are. Their checks clear every single time they send me one. (laughs) But the... You know, that that was... You were in a a commercial. commercial. Yeah. Yeah, on, On the Bridgewater Triangle documentary. Uh, when it aired on Destination America, but now you will be on an episode of Ghost Hunters, provided, you know, you I didn't get cut, get cut yes. which can happen. Um, it absolutely can happen. I know the producers were um, really upset with me that I didn't tell them my story, like, the week before, because they wanted to base the entire episode around my story. So um, there's a good possibility that they kept it and made more of it. Um, she was actually talking about even making, like, reenactions of my story. Um, or there's a good chance that they cut it out because it didn't match everything else that everybody else said. I know the episode description <clears throat> focuses on the fact that uh, they think that recent historical reenactments at the fort has stirred up paranormal activity. Well, my story definitely has something to do with um, that. So, And also, never underestimate the power of editing, that if you did go in there and tell them your story... They still could have built the entire episode around that kind of on the fly. Because the investigation happened after Um, after your interview? Oh, the investigation happened before? Yep. They were done when they had me come in. So then I'm going to ask you then. And Mm. obviously we don't want to give anything away. Mm. But when you're going in there, you know, as a medium, do you feel like there was... Was it it active when you were there filming? Were you feeling that there was a lot of stuff around? Oh, it was definitely active. I actually filmed right in um, the middle of Fort Rodham. So... Um, which if anybody is from the area knows that it's locked a hundred percent of the time. Unless, yeah. Um, I think it's like twice a year maybe that they open the gates to the well, public. Well, they're starting to a little bit more. They? They're coming up with different ways to get people inside. But. So, um, the the whole idea of me filming with them because Ghost Hunters does not like psychics or mediums mm-hmm. was that I was a regular Joe Schmo, um, and telling my story. Obviously, um, my story is based on me being able to see apparitions in front of my face. So, yes, I did see something, but um, they played it off as though I, uh, I don't have abilities. And, yeah, now all the accusations are going to start coming in the chat room and from people on Twitter using the hashtag SpookyLive, where they're <laughs> going to say that you, and on Facebook Live. And, right. But people are going to say, oh, well, you know, that's disingenuous because they're they're cutting that out. It's, it's kind of an omission of information. Absolutely. Um, but I, I don't, just, I don't feel like it's disingenuous. No. I, it's disingenuous to you because it doesn't give you the opportunity to let people know what you're all about. And now when, when people see you, they're going to say, well, wait a minute. You're a medium and you have this experience according to ghost hunters. Right. 
Like, um, I mean, um, anybody could have the experience, I suppose. So that's how they wanted to play it off. But at the same time, um, if anybody does know me, I don't push it out there either. Look what I can do. Um, so, but it was funny because I walked in there, I signed my paperwork, and um, they had me go to the second floor of the fort and sit down. And when they were ready for me, every single time I tried to open my mouth, this gigantic flock of, I think they were pigeons, flew out of nowhere. But um, if anybody's ever been inside the fort, you know what I'm talking about. But if you have not, um, being inside there, you, you're you right on the ocean. And right. it's not just a beach. It's like the middle of the ocean. And it's very loud and there's wind blowing everywhere. Yeah, it's, a, it's you, on like a point yes. that's surrounded by water all, all, all so around So if you are inside the fort even with the doors open. You cannot hear the wind blow. You can't hear anything. You can hear like the blood pumping inside of your ears. Like um very very silent and all these pigeons I'd say there's probably like 10 or more of them flapping their wings and kind of being startled is extremely loud. So it they flew out right in front of me um twice and the camera crew was kind of getting like a little weirded out by it. And I just looked at them. I said, does this happen? Has this happened to you often? Has this happened to you all day? And they said, no, apparently every time you open your mouth, this is what's happening. But it was only you. It was the only time that it was happening. And we kept hearing like weird noises and different things like that. So I had to keep repeating my story over and over and over again. So by the end of it, I think I was laughing through it because I could not believe the weird stuff that was going I, I on. I don't know if you know this or not, but every time you talk on an episode of the show, a pigeon somewhere flies away. I knew it. It's got to be the frequency. Um, but they were kind of like freaked out by it. So, Well, at least it didn't turn into what happened the last time they were filming in New Bedford mm. when somebody got hit in the face with sound equipment. So, Right, right. Could have been worse. Um, but yeah, just just weird noises, sounds. Um, sounded like people like, were throwing rocks next to us. It was very, very strange. Um, and it was daytime. It was in the middle of like, the afternoon. I want to say it was probably like 1 or 2 in the afternoon. There was plenty of people outside. They were enjoying because it's a, it's a park. So people were enjoying themselves and talking and laughing. and um, So it was, it was an interesting experience. And and you had asked me to go with you, and, and I had declined. But yes, you did I remembered too. after the fact that, oh, yeah, they have an ice cream stand there. So Right. And anyway, there's ice cream. Usually so. you'll find me. And we mm, don't... At uh, some we, point or another. We don't have to worry about the world knowing whether I'm a medium or not because I think... They might get their chance, maybe this fall. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, see? On your uh, third appearance on national television. <laughs> yes. Well, we'll leave it at that. My really scary experience. <laughs> well, uh, Matt's going to get our guest on the phone for us, Dr. June Pulliam. Uh, and during the course of the discussion, if you want to call in, you can do so at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. Uh, and, of course... The best part about this is even though we're streaming over YouTube, we can still take your phone calls. Uh, we can still certainly be interactive with you and with the guests as well. Uh, we will, of course, go live on WBSM as soon as the Red Sox game is over, as soon as the post-game show is over. Uh, we will definitely go live over the radio. So depending on all how you like to experience the show, it's all up to you. But we love this YouTube option because we can see you in the chat room and we can interact with you in the chat room. Stephanie's going to be monitoring the chat room throughout the show and she'll jump in with any questions that are posted there or also on Twitter using the hashtag SpookyLive. That's always the way to get a hold of us. Or uh, you can just tweet us directly at SpookySC. Matt does a great job of putting right up there on the screen for us. Uh, you can see 
all of our social media handles and you can see the tweets that pop up using the hashtag spooky live so you can be 100 percent interactive with us during the course of the show and uh we are also very proud to be broadcast every week uh the rebroadcast of each episode on the dark matter radio network so if you haven't checked that out you can follow us there i think we're on I think we're on Tuesday nights right now. I'd have to look at the schedule. I know some things got shifted around recently. Uh, but uh, you get the chance to listen to the show on the rebroadcast on the Dark Matter Radio Network. And something that we've started doing over the last couple of months is, even though we post the entire show on YouTube following the broadcast, we'll put the YouTube video up and we'll share that around on social media so that if you miss the show and you want to watch it in its entirety, you can do so. Uh, Matt does a great job of taking little clips out of the show and we have, you know, webcams and GoPros all over the place now. And he takes these little clips and he puts them up online and he just tries to grab like little moments of the show that can kind of continue the discussion on with you, the listener, later on in the week. So always pay attention to our Facebook page. Follow Spooky South Coast on Facebook. Like us on Facebook and uh, pay attention to the Twitter feed. And you will see that these little video clips get posted, and we don't just throw the video clips up there and say, hey, watch this. You know, we're putting it up there for a reason because we want to keep the discussion going. We want to get your opinion, your thoughts. Uh, we can put polls up there. We can put, uh, we can put, um, you know, surveys. We can put just general questions to try to get you to interact, or we can just, you know, make a, a bold statement that you can either agree with or disagree with, uh, by putting your comments under there. So, there's no reason that the show only has to exist on Saturday nights for you. We can keep the spooky fun going all week long uh, through following us on social media. And I gotta say, I'm I'm very excited now. Uh, I recently got a very nice email from a listener, a regular listener, a weekly listener, who said, you know, we should be proud of the run of shows that we've been on over the last couple of weeks. And of course, I give all credit for that to Chris Balzano, our show's content director, who is the one who has been booking all of the guests and pulling together some of these topics that we've been discussing. And I, 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 for some reason, I'm just so much more excited for tonight's even than some of these discussions that we've been having. They've been great topics, absolutely great guests, but there's so many different directions that we can go tonight that my mind is all going 50 different directions in which way we want to start things off. But we will start things off by introducing our guest, Dr. June Pulliam, uh, a professor of English at LSU at the, well, here goes my bio page. I'm trying to read the bio. Uh, at the tender age of eight, June Pulliam was permitted to stay up by herself and watch George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. She was so traumatized by the experience that she now teaches courses on horror fiction at Louisiana State University. She's also the editor of Dead Reckonings, a review magazine for the horror field, and has offered three volumes of Hooked on Horror, as well as articles on George Romero's Land of the Dead, The Twilight Saga, Roald Dahl, and Gender, and like, like, why can't I ever say lycanthropy at first <laughs> glance? Why can I never spread it out? Uh, and she's put together a number of other books and articles, and she joins us on the line right now. Good evening, Doctor. How are you? Great. How are you doing this evening? We are spooktacular. Is, is it all right if we call you June? Oh, that's fine, yes. Okay. I you know Usually I call the guests by their first names, but you know your first name is Doctor, so <laughs> I wanted to make sure it's all right to call you June. That's fine. And... I gotta say that, uh, just looking over some of the topics that you've covered in books and in essays, some of your published works and the things that you teach of, you might just have the coolest job in America as far as I'm concerned. I'm pretty sure I do, yes, that's true. <laughs> and so, this is something that, according to the bio here, grabbed you at the age of eight, something that has been, 
uh, a part of your life since the age of eight, and you had a, a traumatizing experience with it when you were younger. Some people can go in different directions. Some pe- people could be like my co-host Stephanie here and say, "I don't ever want to watch another horror movie again." <laughs> but you've gone the other way, and you've embraced this and kind of made this your entire life. I really have. I've been extremely fortunate in that regard. And was there ever uh, a point where you said maybe I shouldn't be focusing so much on this? Well, at one point when I was writing my dissertation, I was um, looking around at um, maybe some other possibilities, and I started to focus a little bit more on young adult literature as a whole rather than just horror fiction, and I couldn't get away from it. Um, As somebody on my committee said, um, you know, the thing that I I seem to care most passionately about particularly was film, Um, and, you know, I am really, really very interested in horror film as a medium, um, even beyond horror literature as a whole, so I I just never could get away from it. But, I mean... For some people, uh, you know, it is about kind of the, the, the thrill of it, and it's about the feeling that you get of the adrenaline rush of, of watching a horror movie or, or reading a, a good, uh, horror, piece of horror fiction. You know, you get kind of that adrenaline effect from it, and you've spent so much time researching this and, and breaking it all down and going through themes and, and, uh, and going through archetypes and all of that. Do you still get that same rush from, from the experience? I don't think I get the same feeling that other people get. Um, I, I don't get grossed out easily, um, and I think that's happening with a lot of audiences, given the type of horror I'm seeing now. So you still have things that, you know, have a good degree of splatter, but I'm seeing a lot more subtle things now, too, where the most monstrous thing of all is something that cannot easily be seen, which really takes me back to the work I've done on the book, um, that's coming out about the ghost as a horror archetype. So um, I just finished watching something today, Marble Hornets Always Watching, and you're probably not familiar with that, um, but it's part of the Slenderman mythology that's grown up over the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing that's really, really frightening about Slenderman is he's always kind of at the edge of your consciousness. Um or he's kind of on the edge of your vision. And in this film I watched, he, he's there, he's on this down footage, and he just, whether you're watching or not, he's watching you, he's showing up, and he's something that you can plausibly see if you just kind of look into the distance beyond the trees or in, um, you know, something on the side of the videotape. Other films have, of course, played with that, that idea too, but... Um, I think that's getting to be more frightening than any um, monster that can rip open any type of entrails in 3D CGI or what have you. And we just we've been so saturated with gore, real gore, and um, from the news as well as as created gore in films. But is there? Uh, I mean, we've seen this happen, though. We've seen like cycles of things. You know, when we recently talked uh, a few weeks ago with George Case about the the rise of the occult in pop culture in the seventies. So in the seventies, you have some of these uh, horror films that very much rely on the psychological. Then in the eighties, we had the big rash of slasher films, uh, and it seems like in the nineties things went in a variety of different directions. And then there's been more of those subtle subtle horror films that have come about in the last ten or fifteen years. Is this something that's always just been? cyclical? Well, I think so, yeah, um, because in part because audiences just change, change their tastes, and as audiences become more literate 
in the genre and um, they're able to be more literate, you're going to see horror changing. So one example I'm seeing is with several television shows that have come out in recent years, and that would include Netflix's Stranger Things, which um, just had phenomenal success. Um, NBC's Hannibal would be another one. Um, but these things all depend upon their viewers knowing previous horror texts, films, work, works of fiction, Hannibal in particular. Um, but, you know, it's not something like these older series that would, would go slowly and remind you what had happened if you didn't know it already. Uh, this depends upon the um, viewer knowing the films, the previous films that were made on Thomas Harris's novels as well as the novels themselves. And it just it takes it into this kind of timeless universe um, that, you know, it's the beginnings of Hannibal, yet he's showing the beginnings of what he is to become in our century, not the 20th century. It's kind of like that with um, George Romero's films, too. He's developed this kind of timeless universe where this horror, this narrative is constantly unfolding. Or Bates Motel is another one. This, the past is taking place in our present. Um, it's really strange. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll defer to you on, on this in terms of, of your opinion, having studied this uh, a little bit more deeper. But it seems to me like horror has kind of accepted the fact that, you know, horror is being created by and for people who are already fans of the genre. It's not like they're out there trying to pull in, you know, vast new audiences. They're trying to appease the people who are already interested in it. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, Things are being made less about, you know, movies are being made less about who you can draw into the theater on a Friday night and more about, like, what kind of lasting staying power you can have out there. Do you feel like that's kind of been part of the switch is that it's becoming, it's becoming richer and deeper for the viewer because it's being custom tailored for their experience? Well, it is being custom tailored for their experience and it's being taken out of the theater too. I do see some horror films in the theater. I find value in sitting with an audience and hearing what they laugh at or what just bores them so they just get up and act out. Um, I, I like to hear their presumptions about what's going to happen and then when they're disappointed when it doesn't. But increasingly because, um, we, you know, you have different means of transmitting these films. Um, you have, you just have things more tailored to specific viewers. Like Netflix is an example. Um, Netflix has gone from being a provider of streaming media of other people that belongs to other people to making its own content. And that includes stuff that's tailored for audiences in a way that you just don't usually see on broadcast television. I've enjoyed a lot of Netflix dramas because they have so many women characters and characters of color. So, for example, you see a show like Orange is the New Black, and you're just not going to see that on broadcast TV for a number of reasons. But they're also doing that with their horror. They're tailoring things to this, this specific audience. Um, you're also seeing um, a lot of things that are straight to Netflix. Mm-hmm. Streams only on Netflix, and it's for a certain audience. I ran across a few really excellent horror films that, that streamed on Netflix and I couldn't get them anywhere else. One of them is what I like to call this third-wave feminist slasher film called Almost Mercy that I just, I love, and I made my students watch it last year. I don't think they liked it as much as I did, but um, anyway. You also have things being tailored to viewers where you can rent it pretty cheaply or even buy it on Amazon On Demand or get it streaming through Stars, which is how I accessed um, Marble Hornet's 
hornets always watching. And then you have web series, series that are out there for free that, that people pick up, and they sometimes try to make these um, web series or um, little web films into feature films. So I'm thinking of this film I just saw recently, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the name of it again, but it was based on um, that scary little two-minute film where this woman is trying to go to sleep alone in her house and she sees something in the hall and then it's gone and she sees something in the hall again and it's gone. And I remember the movie's called Lights Out and it's awful. It's really awful. But where this all really, the, really well, I was going to say, all the press tells us it's the best horror movie of all time. All the commercials tell well, us that. <laughs> they've never seen a horror movie then. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. It was so bad that the kids were acting out in the theater and one, one, one teenage boy ran down the aisle screaming out, it's too scary, it's too scary. And obviously it was staged. And my daughter was with me and she got angry, but it was the most entertaining thing of the evening, honestly. I mean, I, I suppose, though, it does, you know, you have to point out the fact that people can become desensitized to a lot of this over time, too, that the more of this that you absorb and the more of it that you, uh, as you were saying, you know, you don't get the same rush that you got. Uh, and, and after a while, that will happen. You know, that will start to wane a little bit, but... It's almost like when it does wane, when the thrill of the chill is gone, that's when you can really kind of peel back the layers and give it a much better analysis. Well, absolutely, yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't, somebody stopped me one time when I was giving a paper about Land of the Dead and asked me if I was bothered by the gore. And I had to think for a minute because I didn't really see gore in that. I saw something else entirely. Um, because, yeah, you, you do get very sensitized very quickly. Um, it doesn't mean that you yourself are becoming a monster, but I, I find that people who enjoy horror are people who, um, you know, they, they see in it um, a landscape through which they can um, play out their darkest fears um, and, you know, think about them in a way that they couldn't think about them otherwise, a kind of dream language. I, I've, it's weird, though, too, that the way that people can be willing to accept what they see and what they absorb kind of depends on the context of how it's being done. You know, I remember when The Sopranos was on TV, it was this hugely controversial thing because, you know, these guys would brutally kill people that they were supposedly friends with. And, you know, uh, they'll just throw one of their friends off the side of a boat in the first season. And, you know, this is so crazy and so controversial. And should the show be allowed on TV? And that's all kinds of problems. But now, you know, we have a show like The Walking Dead where we can watch zombies eating somebody, tearing their face oh, off. And people something. are like, oh, that's great. Oh, and the zombies are the least threatening thing on that. Yeah, that's at least as gory as something like Game of Thrones. I was actually laughing at some friends of mine today who are coming late to the Game of Thrones party and starting to watch it and commenting about, oh, my, it has so much sex and violence in it. I'm thinking, wow, don't watch much TV, do you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and of course, we've got people uh, already asking about uh, about The Walking Dead in the chat room, and we will certainly talk about that uh, coming up during the course of the discussion. But one of the things that I'm always, you know, as a fan of horror and as a fan of uh, being scared. I mean, I, it's funny to say because I don't actually get scared watching it, but I, you know, just having that potential is I like those slow burn psychological dramas. You know, I like that. I like a movie like The Others more than I like, uh, you know, Paranormal Activity. I like it to be more subtle. I like that because it seems more realistic, and I, I think realism is, is a lot of what makes some of these movies scarier to people now these days, too. 
Well, you know, I actually like both, and I see both as being realistic in different ways. I had a huge fight with my writing partner about the first paranormal activity. Um, he is more um, sensitive to sounds than I am, and he said, this is a stupid movie. It's just um, making a bunch of scary sounds to try to freak out the audience. I didn't notice that. What scared me to death in that film was there's constantly this shot of the couple in the bed and to their left is this big black hole that leads into their hallway. You can't see anything there. And the way that shot was constructed, it is so unsettling. That's the part of the frame in the film that you're really not paying that much attention to. People tend to pay more attention to the right part of the frame. And so things usually jump out at you in the left part of the frame. And that whole movie made me so visually unsettled. It scared me as much as the others did in a way. And uh, is is there though? Is there any movie that you can say has changed the game at all? I mean, Paranormal Activity. People look at that and say, "Okay, here's a movie that's going to change things." And in the end, really, it didn't. Um, no, it didn't. The sequels are, t- are just tedious. I can't stand them. It seems like there hasn't really been a, you know, you can look at The Exorcist, for example, as being a real, you know, cornerstone of a change in direction of horror, but. I don't, and, and then of course you get into the Friday the 13th and the Nightmare on Elm Streets and, uh, and Halloween and those kind of turn things a little bit. Have we seen any kind of, uh, consciousness shift in horror and pop culture with, with some of the stuff that's come out in recent years? Yeah, I think we are seeing a lot more minimalist horror as it always likes to call itself. And, um, you know, we, what I was watching this evening, I think, was an example of minimalist horror, too, where you don't necessarily have disgusting, gory things, but um, just the dread of something coming to get you, something being there, is enough to be frightening. I mean, there's there's a lot of value in that, I feel. And we should mention, by the way, that you're, you're actually, um, you're not home tonight. <laughs> no, I'm not home tonight. I'm um, out at another location, and there are people walking by, and they're a little bit noisy. I'm sorry. No, no problem. I just I just wanted to clear up to everybody, because the, the phone sounds a little bit choppy, and we've been hearing some background noise, so I want people to understand background uh, noise. what's going on. people coming in from the bars to the coffee shop where I frequent. That's our prime audience, so we're cool with that. Oh, fantastic. Well, good. But, uh, you know, I love when people say, you know, you see like a director talking about a new film and he says, you know, I want to be able to build up the scares and the tension without having to show the monster. And, and sometimes that can be very effective, but then other times it gets to the point where it also can turn into Cloverfield. Yeah, yeah. I actually liked Cloverfield. I didn't dislike it, but I was very disappointed when they finally, you know, showed what it was. Yeah, but I like the way the tale unfolded, and I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of these um, stories told diegetically, that is, as they're actually happening, and, um, you know, to me, that's interesting, um, is, you know, we can't have any kind of coherent narrative anymore. It's sort of like the novel World War Z, if you've ever read that. Um, I actually teach that when I um, teach the second part of the American Literature Survey, so I... um, I like that novel because it's not just about zombies, but it's about the impossibility of ever having a coherent narrative about what happened. You have so many different versions, and they can never be tied up into a neat little package. And you see that with these diegetic narratives, too. Something like Cloverfield, here's this kind of incoherent account of what happened in New York City the night that these monsters landed. Um, Cloverfield 10, um, 10 Cloverfield Lane is a little bit more coherent. 
Um, and I, I read that the monster, the Cloverfield monster was kind of added on at the end when the um, production company acquired the rights to the script and needed to put it in its franchise somehow to market it. But, you know, that one's kind of minimalist, too. I mean, it's, you know, really this this small little film that depends on John Goodman acting and the acting of the uh, the other two people on the screen. And we're obviously, you know, we'll we'll be getting more in depth into some of the stuff coming up in the next hour. Uh, actually, I I think that the Red Sox are still going on, so we won't actually have to stop for the news, which is good. Uh, but okay. wh- I mean, when we normally do the show and we're broadcasting over the radio, uh, we have to be aware of like network news breaks and commercials and all that. But when right now we're just going over YouTube because the Red Sox are playing on our station, uh, so we have a little bit more freedom. Uh, but oh, and I'll, I'll give you the alert as to when not to to you know drop any bad words. Oh, thank you. I hope I haven't yet, Josh. And uh, you have to worry more about us than anything. But when we're looking at a lot of horror, too, in the last, you know, 15 to 20 years, uh, you know, M. Night Shyamalan has kind of embedded in people's minds the idea of the surprise twist ending and and needing to have that in a lot of these horror movies. I was just watching Frailty earlier today, and that was my first time ever seeing it. And, you know, that had a lot of those elements, you know, kind of the the psychological thriller. It's a horror movie, but it has, you know, it, it's believable, and it has to have that kind of surprise twist ending at the end. Is that something that we're starting to see, you know, wane a little bit? Are we seeing less of that overall? I think we are. I think Shyamalan, um, well, he obviously wanted to be the next Hitchcock and have Hitchcockian twist endings, but people are getting kind of tired of that, too. Um, it, it, it's that the twist ending itself has become predictable. And so, um, what you're seeing are cutting edge directors kind of moving over to the next thing, which is this complete uncertainty. I mean, the monster is frightening to us after all because it's a creature that crosses borders. It crosses categories. Um, we live our lives by, um, all kinds of binaries that we depend upon being rock solid, like the difference between male and female, the difference between human and animal, um, the difference between us and them, for example. Um, and horror constantly challenges these binaries to show that they're really extremely permeable and they're not very solid. You know, you can break down and analyze the... The, the people who make horror and the people who are successful at it and you can try and get into the psyche of a, of a John Carpenter or of a Stephen King you know you can try and break that all down but what I find even more fascinating are the people that can pull off successful horror comedy and that's something that I think is you know in some ways you look at it as being a dichotomy but oh absolutely yeah there, there are some movies that pull off both that are able to be equally frightening and and humorous what does that say about us as viewers that we will embrace something like that? I think that's the only logical direction that some horrors can go is they they're just so over the top they can only be funny. Like for example, Shaun of the Dead and Zombieland. Mm-hmm. You know, the zombie has become, you know, such a cultural stereotype that um you know, you can have movies like Shaun of the Dead that um lampoons so many other different movies, and then Zombieland, which also plays to lampoon a lot of different things. Uh, being from Louisiana and and paying attention to you know this genre, have you seen Hell Baby? I haven't seen Hell Baby, but I want to see it. I that was advertised to me on Amazon, and I was about ready to pick it for a rental. Oh, I highly recommend it. It is hilarious. 
it just just for the shrimp po boys alone, the it's it's just hilarious. Uh, I highly recommend it. I'm a huge fan of the state, so I love Thomas Lennon and Ben Grant and everything they do. Um, but so it's it's definitely it has horror elements, but it is just so over the top ridiculous. I think you'll really enjoy it. Oh, great! I'm gonna have to watch that. So I I do think though that people who are into this, people like us and, and yourself, people who want to kind of see the commonalities and the themes that run through this. You know, we're always picking apart these movies and, and stories as we're reading them and enjoying them. Is there anything that you can kind of see of a common thread in the people who enjoy them? You know, is there anything about us as people that make us become geared toward these, or do they just appeal to a wide cross-section of the audience? Well, that's a good question, and I'm not even sure what it is about this stuff that appeals to me. I mean, actually, I've been into horror much longer than when I was just eight years old. When I was really young and I wasn't able to write yet and barely able to read, I remember wanting to write a story about a ghost, and it was probably a pretty crappy story. I think it was about four, and I remember getting an older kid who was six to write down my story for me. Uh, and I don't know why this has always appealed to me. I, I don't know why. I like the monster. The monster is, in some, for me and for other people, in many ways, a sympathetic character, even when it's not a sympathetic character. Um, you know, some of us can identify with the monster a little bit more than others. For example, when King Kong was released, African-American audiences kind of cheered him on for um, what he was doing to the whites for as long as he did it. I'm just trying to think back to some of the formative, you know, moments, at least when I was a, a younger viewer. And I think part of the appeal of horror was that, you know, I wasn't supposed to be watching it. Uh, being, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, you're not supposed to be watching these kind of movies. And I think that that was part of the appeal of it. I wonder if, does does that stick with people to some degree, that it's almost like uh, it's it's taboo or it's, it's alternative? It's kind of a little bit of an outsider thing that people still uh, can focus and, and delve into the world of horror? Yeah, I think it's more of an outsider thing. Um, watching horror actually wasn't forbidden to me. I grew up outside of Chicago, and we had WGN before it was a superstation. And like many of those stations, um, they had to fill their airtime with a lot. They didn't have network programming, so they would fill their airtime Friday nights, Saturday afternoons, Saturday nights with um, Universal Studios. Um, horror films, Hammer Studios, Godzilla films, and so I got to see all of that. And so my parents didn't think anything of it. When I was eight, they let me stay up and watch Night of the Living Dead, which that would have been 1970. Um, Night of the Living Dead was made in 68, and um, so this, you know, that means, it, you know, why was the station showing something that was not only so scary that it was being banned in a lot of places, but... Um, should not have been out of copyright yet. Well, that's because um, somebody in the distribution company for the film messed up and didn't put the year on the original print of Night of the Living Dead, and Romero lost all of the um, royalties for that film. So flash forward two years later, and WGN is showing this really scary film that I shouldn't be watching late at night. And my parents let me stay up. It was Friday. They didn't know what this was. But they weren't particularly fussy about me watching horror. And actually, I was one of the lucky kids who had um, a television set in her bedroom. And I got to watch these things. 
So yeah, I did the same thing, and and I remember actually my parents, you know, we would rent movies, and you know, it was the '80s when I was growing up, so you didn't own movies, you went out and you rented them from the grocery store, the video store, whatever. And I remember yeah, that was college for me. <laughs> I remember that my parents would, you know, multiple times they would go out and rent The Evil Dead. Like I, I remember seeing it in the house a couple of times. I was like, well, what's this movie all about? That people are actually going out. Uh, my parents would actually go out and see this again. So uh, what I did, did I turn off the commercials? Is that what I did? Okay, Matt's fixing the, the stuff. But uh, the, the where I lived, I could walk down the staircase from my bedroom upstairs and see the TV. And if I just stayed behind the wall a little bit that was on part of the staircase, my parents would never know that I was there. And so I would kind of just hang out there and watch movies like The Evil Dead, and and that's that's how I would check out some of these horror films. And then once my parents realized that you know I was watching this, then they were like, "Well, you know what? Watch whatever you want, but it's your problem if you can't sleep at night." <laughs> so that opened the door to watch. You know, I was watching Poltergeist at like four and five years old, so I had no problems with it. I was just uh, absorbing all of that. Top sites. Hey, Stephanie, I turned your uh, uh, microphone you off. I was gonna say I I did the same thing. I used to um go in the other room and my my house is kind of like a, a roundabout like you can just walk around um the center staircase and i used to peek through the doorway and um watch my dad watch all kinds of scary movies um scariest i think that's probably affected me to this day is probably jaws <laughs> fear of sharks is yeah, out of control it's a horror movie to me i can't even get near the ocean um oh god but, um, let's see what else. Uh, Scream was one of them. Um, Exorcist was another that I remember. It was horrifying. That's funny that you all got your um, love of horror from your parents by watching things that were forbidden. I didn't have a similar narrative, and but I had shown these films to my daughter ever since she was little, kind of age-appropriate stuff. I let her watch Night of the Living Dead by herself when she was 12, and she she goes to scary movies this week sometimes, but sometimes she doesn't want to go. She says it's too scary, and she doesn't want to watch it, and she's going to get freaked out. So that's me now. There you go. At almost thirty. I I got to say, I just want to pop in here, and I think we're live broadcasting on WBSM now. So thank you everybody Fantastic. for joining us. We are talking with our guest, Dr. June Pulliam. She's the author of the book Ghosts in Popular Culture and Legend, as well as uh, numerous other works that we'll be discussing during the course of the show tonight. Uh, but I want to say hi to somebody who just popped into the chat room, or at least I just noticed that they're in the chat room, uh, our buddy Ray J, who has been a long-time listener of the show and I know is a huge fan of horror and a huge fan of film and breaks all this down. So, Ray J, I'm glad you could join us live for the show tonight and be part of the discussion. And if anybody else wants to be part of the discussion, you can join in the chat room on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube.com and search, search for, for Spooky South Coast or go to SpookySouthCoast.com. You'll find the link there as well, and you'll be able to connect with us there and watch and listen to the show and chat about the show as we go on. You can also talk about it on social media, on Twitter using the hashtag SpookyLive, and you can call in 508-996-0500-877-996-1420 if you have a question for June. And we, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to cover a lot of different topics here but you you do focus quite a bit heavily on uh on zombies with a lot of your research and a lot of your work i do so obviously the big question is you know how has the walking dead both helped and changed the zombie genre oh that's a good question so um when the walking dead first aired uh it 
and when the comic book series first came out, it was obviously riffing on the Marrow's classic. But it, you know, I think it's really changed the genre in that Walking Dead sees, you know, what is the logical conclusion of this kind of world? Romero was kind of trying to do that in his lengthy um, Night of the Living Dead series, and I think he did it best in Land of the Dead, where we start seeing that zombies are capable of forming class consciousness, and they can work together for the common good, whereas the human communities always fail because they're unable to do this. So we're seeing this explored in depth in The Walking Dead. Rick's community is one of these communities that, even though they have their problems, Ultimately, all of these characters are able to put their um, own needs aside very often for the um, benefit of all. And problems happen when Rick's community comes up against other communities, um, like the one with the governor, where they don't necessarily do that, or you have a dictator ruling the community, or you have a hopelessly naive community, like the one that you have in... um, Oh, gosh, I'm blanking on the name, but it was the one from last uh, Al- Alexandria. Alexandria, yeah. You have the naive rich people with their solar panels and their well-stocked pantries, and they didn't know how to fight. Well, so, I mean, I remember watching the first season of the show, though, and, and you know, zombies being whatever they are, you know, to people, and however, they've never really been scary to me, but uh, I found the storyline to be intriguing. But I kept saying, like, I I need this show to get to the point where... The zombies are no longer the antagonists, where the zombies kind of just become part of the background. And I think that it's done that over the last couple of seasons, where the zombies are, you know, they're just no different than, you know, you know, crows in a cornfield. They're just out there. And it's more about the, the, the interpersonal relationships. And I think one of the most, um, disturbing episodes was an episode, I think from season, season six, it was called The Grove. And um, I'm not trying to make spoilers for anybody, but um, um, what's happened is the group from the um, the group from the prison has been dispersed, and um, you have just um, oh, Carol and Tyrese, and they have a couple of children that they've taken with them when they ran two um, girls who are sisters, and the oldest sister is very, very dangerously mentally ill. So, what do you do? in a world where you don't have psychiatrists, where you don't have mental health care. What do you have to do with this kid? I'm not going to say what happened, but it's it's pretty disturbing. Oh, Another I, yeah. really, I think a lot of people know the, uh, the you know, look at the flowers yeah, reference the by flowers. now. <laughs> yeah, look at the flowers. Look at the flowers, yep. But- yeah. I mean, to me, and though... You have another one where you have that um, forensic psychiatrist who is teaching um, the character from the first season who's just come back to a different way of being with the zombies. You no longer kill anymore. You just redirect their energy. You only kill where necessary. Yeah, that's actually my favorite episode. Yeah, I think that's my favorite episode, too. And that just blew me away. Because being an American, I always had this idea that, oh, they're zombies. We kill them. You know, zombie narratives from other cultures have very different ideas about them. Um, There isn't this clear boundary between the living and the dead that we like to think that there is. You know, you have these people come back from the dead... Um, in John Lundquist's novel, um, I think it's called Burying the Dead. And um, what are you going to do? Well, it's Sweden, so you take care of them. You set up special housing projects for them. They have to be called the reliving. They can't be called zombies, and they have to be taken care of. Here, you know, 
we we shoot at them. We kill them. With, we terminate them with extreme prejudice until there's that one moment that undoes us. When we see that one zombie who has something familiar about it. Maybe this is a loved one who has now been reanimated. You're going to kill that one. Well, That's always the moment that undoes people, especially in American zombie narratives. We, I mean, I, I can say that, you know, tuning our own horn a little bit here, but Spooky South Coast, we were uh, one of the first radio shows to welcome on Isaac Marion when he wrote Warm Bodies. Oh, yes. And that was something that I thought did a good job of turning around the the zombie genre and giving us kind of the zombie perspective. And even the movie, I thought, you know, as much as it was like a, you know, like a Twilight type movie, you know, it was designed for the teen audience, I think, more than anything. I think even the movie did a great job of turning that around and putting a fresh spin on the zombie story. Yeah, exactly. And you're seeing zombie narratives now where zombies have consciousness. Um, like, um, uh, what is it? Stone. Raising Stony Mayhill is a novel where you have a zo- have zombies who have consciousness. It's about, um, it's based in Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead was a false documentary, bad propaganda to justify slaughtering all these zombies. Well, some of them still exist and they're developing consciousness. And the main character, Stony Mayhill, by the end of the novel, he becomes kind of a Buddha figure who's able to transcend um, the flesh in order to have this, this new kind of consciousness and connection with all living things. So um, the zombie is becoming this post-human character, um, a creature who is superior to humans in its um, ability to connect with and interact with the world around it. And and to take a quick step back to uh, horror comedy, it just popped into my head. Have you seen Things We Do in the Shadows? Yes, I have. Yeah, I thought that was pretty yeah. well done too. That was quite. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, whatever. I mean, the Flight of the Concords guys. No matter what they do, I'm I'm good. Jermaine Clement makes me laugh just being <laughs> on TV, being on my screen. But uh, get, I mean, getting back to the idea with the, with the Walking Dead, especially, like what I find interesting about that show and the way that they're portraying these human living characters is, you know, I'm not totally convinced that at the end of the series we're going to look at rick and his community as the good guys of the show as the heroes of the show i think they're actually the bad guys i think they're actually the ones who are going to end up being causing more harm than good in the end they certainly have done in the past that's true and characters that we have loved have been shown to us to be filled with flaws especially i think it's in season three where rick just loses his mind after Lori dies and he's got to step down as leader for a while and they decide maybe they have to figure out a different way of leading the community. Is there... I and mean, the show's also gotten beyond the Carl is in the house, Carl is not in the house um, season that was um, season two. Right, I, was, I was not a fan of the show for a long time. We actually have an episode of Spooky South Coast out there where I kind of railed against the show and being so popular, and I couldn't understand why people were... But the last couple of seasons have redeemed it in my eyes uh, to some degree but I will say if there's one lasting legacy of The Walking Dead that I will always be forever grateful to it's those the meme that exists where Rick is telling Carl the joke Mm -hmm. and then he grabs his arm and repeats the punchline that is to me that's the ultimate (laughs) pop culture reference when you become a meme yes exactly yeah the one with the iPad (laughs) (laughs) I love it an iPad Carl (laughs) Carl Uh, so good 
but I mean, obviously, I think that that show has also done quite a bit to open people's minds up to stranger ideas and stranger topics, even if it's not necessarily horror per se. Like a show like Preacher would never have had an audience had The Walking Dead not preceded it, and I thought Preacher was fantastic. Yeah, that's something I need to catch up on, actually. Oh, I highly recommend it. It's it's just weird enough uh, that it will keep you definitely interested. And then to to go back, because I never read the comics, so to go back and then I watched Talking Preacher afterwards where they kind of broke it all down, all the stuff that happened in the first season never existed in the comics. They wrote this whole first season just to get them to the jumping off point of the comics, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, that's very much like what happened in um, AMC's The Walking Dead is they kind of wrote a lot of stuff into the series that wasn't in the comics at all. And now what's happened is AMC's The Walking Dead has become the lead um, artifact in that whole franchise and not the comics on which it was based. I mean, I suppose we want that. You know, we don't want direct adaptations. We want to be able to kind of use those storylines and, and those ideas and those characters to create new things so that, you know, I, I hate when people watch Game of Thrones, because I don't watch it. I, I, I was done with it after the first season. But I hate oh, when you... Oh, I love it. <laughs> but people get into these discussions, these arguments about, you know, what goes with the book and what doesn't and how, you know, they want to read all the books before the next season starts. It's like, what's the point? Why are you watching the show if you want to know what's going to happen? You know, and my wife did that with uh, with True Blood, where she, want, yeah. you know, she went out and read all the books. I'm like, yeah, but kind of enjoy the show as it's happening. Then you can go back and read the books. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, too, it it touches upon the concept of adaptation itself in that um, no adaptation can be fully faithful to the original. There's just absolutely no way. And I think that when directors have set to make adaptations of famous literary works, they kind of have that in mind. But, you know, this can't be faithful. um, And, you know, there's things we can do in the visual medium that we can't do in the solely literary medium. And you see that with the Universal Studios monsters, with the um, with Todd Browning's Dracula, which really gave us this icon of Dracula that we have now that's very different from Stoker's original. You see it with um, James Wales' Frankenstein, which is very, very different from Mary, Mary Shelley's imagination of it. Um, you didn't see it with Phantom of the Opera and the imagination of what the Phantom is like. So, I suppose, though, also that, um, you know, people, uh, uh, there's probably some comfort in knowing what to expect when you're dealing with these type of topics. I mean, it's, it's kind of to say that I've already gone through it once. And, you know, I read the book and I know what happens. And so now I can watch the show and, and you know, it might be kind of a, a comforting factor to some people to some degree to be able to go on this thrill ride of experiencing these stories. But I love when it's you know, people will lambaste a movie that might bastardize religion. For example, you know, the prophecy film, the first prophecy film I loved. I thought it was great. And people were like, yeah, but they basically just take a bunch of, you know, BS religious stuff and try to build this whole mythology around that. I don't care. I I think that that's better than trying to make it fit around what we actually uh, believe in. Well, and you can look at the Hunger Games adaptations as well. And for me, I love the Hunger Games novels, but the first um, film in the series is really tedious because the um, screenwriter and the director try to be entirely two faces of the novel, and the film just gets weighted down. See, I, I never read the book. I watched the first movie. Uh, again, I, I mean, I sound like I'm a pretty 
grumpy old bastard here complaining about some of these things. But I mean, some of it, I just, I can understand why it's popular to people, but it just doesn't appeal to me. And I know that that will, you know, not, not all of this stuff is universal. Um, oh, of course. But there is yeah. one, there is one topic that seems to be pretty well universal. And out of all the things we're talking about tonight, it's probably the only thing we can discuss that Stephanie is not afraid of. And, and June, <laughs> you actually Thanks. were able to fight for and get the ability to teach a college course on Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't have to fight for that. That was like, yeah, go ahead and do it. Oh, really? Right away. Oh, wow. Yeah, the students had a fight to get in it. And I want to teach that again sometime, but there's just so many things I want to teach. So how, so I mean, many things. What, so what was kind of the focus? Yeah. Online? <laughs> Can anyone um, maybe I'll up? write one online. I'm awfully late on delivering an online adolescent um, literature course that I need to update. So I, I don't know. It might happen one day. If somebody pays me enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Stephanie is a huge Harry Potter fan. Oh, I think yeah. that that is a very accessible kind of, you know, it's not horror, but it's it's different. It's strange. It's it's we can call it paranormal for the sake of this argument. Where well, it's, it's paranormal, yeah, and it opens up that door for people that might not normally have opened it. Well, and Harry Potter, um, as well, is um, something that appeals to both children and adults. And it's also, you know, the novels as a whole, they go from what I would call tween literature. So it's not quite adolescent literature, not quite children's literature. And as things get a little bit more serious, as stuff gets real, um, it becomes adolescent literature when real things are at stake suddenly, much more real than what's represented on the first and second novel. I'll, I'll say this too, for those who are not uh, in the chat room right now on our YouTube channel, you're missing out because I'm just seeing all these messages fly by and it looks like the topics there, they're going all over the place too, so I'm, I'm excited to go back and read those after the show. But Stephanie is also monitoring it and she'll jump in with any questions I am. of anything that pops up. Uh, I mean, we, like I said, there's so many different things that we want to touch upon with you over the, the time that we have remaining. Uh, but you do also do a lot of analysis of the works of Roald Dahl. And the, to me, I think it'll always be in my top maybe three movies of all time, the film version of Willy Wonka, which I know is very different than Charlie and the Chocolate which Factory. One? The original. Oh, okay. The, the, the original. The, the Johnny Depp one doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned. Okay, that, that, okay. That never happened. Uh, but the, you know, the the... Gene Wilder portrayal of Willy Wonka in, in that movie, I think that was a very subtle way of introducing horror themes to young kids. Yeah, I think you're right. That's, it's a horror movie if you look at it. It's you know, creepy. it really is. I just said that. Yeah. Well, it really is frightening. I mean, look what happened to those other kids, the naughty, disobedient kids. And Dahl deals with that repeatedly in his work where... Um, Bad people um, have terrible things happen to them. They're humorous, terrible things, but they're bad things. But it, that's the that's kind of the key, though. Is like it, it wasn't somebody that didn't deserve it. No, they all deserve it. It's kind of like Hannibal Lecter's victims. They all deserve it for some reason, even if it's just like um, Benjamin Rapsale, the um, flautist for um, the symphony orchestra, that is always off key, and it just enrages Hannibal and he kills them. It doesn't Usually take people have bad manners or something. It doesn't take much to set people off. Uh, well, it actually does it, <laughs> unfortunately. 
and I think part of the thing too with with at least Gene Wilder's performance, I know that there was a lot of, um, if I remember, you know what I've what I've read and what I've heard right, there was some controversy with him being cast as Willy Wonka because some people didn't know if he'd be able to play that darker side of the character. Um, but I always thought that he did a, a fantastic job of being creepy at the same time as being, you know, uh, humorous as well. Well, yeah, he's just, you know, just this side of pedophile or something else right. because he's so, so insistently avuncular. And you just don't get that with the Johnny Depp thing. The problem with Johnny Depp and Tim Burton, Tim Burton always takes Johnny Depp and makes him way too weird. I do. Over the top weird. I do think though that kind of the, you know, the, the scene on, on the boat down the Chocolate River is what, you know, probably affected me the most as a kid. That is, and I can't be on a boat now and not sing it. <laughs> but at the same time, like that was something that was, you know, one of the strong moments of, uh, that said to me as a kid, like, wait a minute, should I even really be watching this? Mm-hmm. Like, should well, they be showing us this in school? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, they showed it to you in school. They did. Yeah, the Uncle yeah. looked like a certain presidential candidate that I won't name. <laughs> <laughs> same color, same hair. Uh, exactly. Just take a just take a picture of him, Photoshop the hair green, and there you go. Yes. But also, every time I mention Donald Trump, somebody now will write an email off to us that that happened. Uh, I didn't mean to get your couple times emails. Over. I'm sorry. No, 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 no problem. I welcome them. I love it. Uh, I love when people kind of go after us for things. But one of the one of the Gosh. things that you have written about and and talked about extensively in the past is the idea of the final girl in horror films and kind of just walk people through what, what that is. Okay, so the final girl emerged with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and this is Carol Clover's um, ideas that I'm riffing on here from her book um, Men, Women, and Chainsaws and she's talking about gender in the horror film. So the final girl is the girl who lives through the maniac's wrath. She lives to the night and according to Clover, the final girl is in a kind of gender distress in the way that the killer is in a sort of gender distress. And the killer has to kill to resolve his gender distress. You know, it's a man usually, it's a man almost always, and his gender distress is because, you know, he, he's just, he's impotent in some way. And so the final girl, she's always androgynous to kind of, um, you know, show that she's in, not exactly in gender distress, but she's gender fluid. She's not neatly contained in one box or another. Um, and, you know, one thing I've been noticing, too, is um, that the final girl has positive characteristics. This isn't all negative. Um, it's not like what um, they talk about in Scream, for instance, where um, the final girl um, lives only because she's a virgin. And so this is a ratification of patriarchal ideas about women's value and women's proper roles. It's much more than that. Um, what I'm noticing is the final girl looks at what is presented to her as adult female sexuality in, say, a movie like, um, like Nightmare on Elm Street, the original one. So Nancy looks at what's presented to her by her friend as a representation of adult sexuality, that is, engaging in sexual intercourse, having a boyfriend, and her, her friend's in basically an abusive relationship. Um, there are a lot of hints in the film that, um, that Tina's friend Rod might be beating her up. He's insanely jealous. He, they break up all the time, and then they have makeup sex. It looks like a cycle of domestic violence. 
Nancy looks at that. Nancy looks at her parents' failed marriage. She looks at the tired marriage of her boyfriend's um, parents. And she's just kind of waiting for something better to come along, I think. It's not so much that she survives because she's a virgin. She survives because she's not distracted by stupid things. And I'm noticing that there's something else emerging now in this um, century, something I'm calling the third wave feminist um, slasher film, where you have even fewer demarcations between the killer and the hero. So something like Jennifer's body. You have um, the title character. She becomes possessed by a demon, but... The ceremony um, in which she sacrificed goes wrong because she's not even, in her words, a backdoor virgin. So, um, anyway, um, her best friend, Needy, goes off to avenge what happens to Jennifer after Jennifer has to be euthanized. Or in Almost Mercy, you have um, the, the title character avenging um, what's been done to her friend as a result of his being this strange kid and being tormented all, all his life and he... He goes off to try to become a school shooter and fails at that, and he's dragged away to prison. So she um, gets guns and goes and kills everybody who's tormented him. And you cheer her on while she's killing these people. And she's, she's kind of a final girl and a slasher at the same time. And, and uh, Ray J just brought up a good point in the chat room, and uh, he wrote, you know, the writers of Friday the 13th felt the final girl was the one who was able to look at the situation and was able to make a creative, informed reaction rather than a primitive reaction. And I think you see a lot of that. I wish my buddy Bill Gothier was in the uh, chat room tonight. Uh, he's written extensively online about Nightmare on Elm Street, and he would probably say the same thing as this, too, where, you know, as you were mentioning, where you're not distracted by these other things, and it's almost like these characters are rising above the typical teenager of that era. You know, well, they really are. Or of and any era, really, the typical self-absorbed teenager. Well, and also, if you look at something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, for example, and one reason Sally survives is because she resorts to typical feminine behavior. So she lives because instead of trying to stand up to the killer, which you can't do, he's got a chainsaw. She runs and hides when it's appropriate, and she has what's probably one of the longest screens in cinematic history. She runs from the house, tries to flag down a truck driver. He gets unlucky, and he gets killed um, by the maniac, and she runs back to the house and screams again, and she can finally escape. So that's typical feminine behavior that usually gets you killed in most films, like earlier slasher films, um, earlier horror films, like the original Night of the Living Dead. One reason um, Barbara is just a liability is because she's so feminine. She falls in her high heels. She becomes catatonic immediately after seeing her brother killed in front of her. She's just no damn good. She's dead weight. Um, there's actually a really good remake of Night of the Living Dead by Tom Savini that kind of updates the character of Barbara as the final girl. And she looks at the situation and assesses it rationally in a way that men don't. I mean... You know, they're engaged in this battle for territory. Um, should we stay in the basement? Should we stay upstairs? Who should we let in? Who should we let out? She has a third idea. She literally thinks outside the box. And, um, you know, she learns how to shoot pretty quickly, how to become useful. And she's the only one who survives as a result. Uh, by the way, whenever we mention Tom Savini on Spooky South Coast, we always must refer to him by his proper title, Sex Machine. 
text machine. Oh, hey, I think that's a pretty appropriate title. I've seen pictures of him. Right, let me explain to Stephanie because she doesn't watch horror movies. He played a character called Sex Machine in a Tarantino film. I so. figured okay. there was something Oh, to gosh, do. which one? Uh, he was in From Dusk Till Dawn. I haven't seen that one as much as other Tarantino oh, films. You have to see this one. I mean, this is right up your alley. It's a horror film. It is. And uh, and uh, he plays this character that helps him fight the zombies in the bar, and uh, he's there with alongside Fred Williamson. So you know, you have a couple '70s film stars there, and and he plays, and Savini plays a character called Sex Machine. So from now on, I always have to refer to him as such. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah. I'll, I'll, he has something like about Tarantino. He's so aware of the genre. I mean, he makes films that look like they're the kind of films that I would have watched in the 1970s. The C and lower grade movies that would come on and just be there, and you know, they would be entertaining in some kind of strange way. But they very much spoke to their era too. And I, I have yet to see the Hateful Eight. So that's I haven't the- seen the Hateful Eight, but. Um, I really like the Django Unchained and, um, you know, what was the one about the Nazis? Uh, that was, um, am I blanking on the title? Inglorious Bastards. Inglorious Bastards. Uh, yeah. Inglorious Bastards. It's one I of really the, like that the, one. the tension in that movie, especially some of those scenes. Oh man, so great. But apparently yeah. The Hateful Eight. Um, Matt, have you seen it? I know. Th- no, no. I actually haven't seen The Hateful Eight. Apparently, from what I've heard, although it is portrayed as this, you know, kind of cowboy drama, it's actually a horror movie. That's that's what I remember hearing in some of the reviews about it. It's it's a sneaky horror movie, is the way that it was described. So I'm gonna have to watch that. I just have not seen it yet. And uh, yes, Chris <laughs> mentioned in the chat room, crotch gun. That's what uh, Sex Machine will forever be known as the best hidden gun in all the history of film. So uh, oh, that would be I, amusing. You will you <laughs> yeah, will definitely I'd like to see that. Definitely enjoy that. But uh, Chris brought up a question, too, that um, he wanted to, to have us discuss a little bit. And that was the idea of, you know, looking at the audience and looking at the way that they're taking away from these horror films. Are horror films more empowering for women? And, and do they experience these films differently than men do? I really think they do. Um, you know, I, I really think they cheer the women on when the women fight back. Um, and they're just tired of the same page, um, old patriarch garbage and they're not going to take it anymore. You know, I was posting something on my Facebook um, this morning about some um, woman who was once um, captured by ISIS and, and raped by their commander and then passed off to um, his subordinates as a sex slave and now she's fighting ISIS and she just shot him to death. And all my female friends, I could just hear the cheer going up like, yeah. She took care of them. I could, I mean, I can see how they can be empowering toward women, you know, uh, and how they would walk away from some of these films. I don't know if you saw Teeth, but you got to yes, feel. I love Teeth. I'm teaching it this semester in my gender and horror film. You're class. teaching. I you're, love teeth. you're actually teaching Teeth in class. Yes, and I just showed them the woman. It was our first film, and I think I scared some of them. That that has to lead to this question. I have to ask this as a follow up, or I'm not doing my job right. Have you ever brought up Human Centipede in class? I haven't. I need to watch it. No, no, you don't. <laughs> no? If, if you watch it, I did not recommend that you watch it. This did not come from Why? me. Uh, I haven't even watched it. I've just seen some clips mm-hmm. and heard about it, and I've heard it's the most disgusting movie ever. Matt, actually... Well, then I have to watch it. Matt, you've, you've seen it, right? Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. It's not... Um, Aren't they like it's not like the best. Now? Yeah, it's, I, I, I would say it's more of a, I guess, slasher gross you out yeah, movie that's the idea. than anything else. I, yeah, I, I'd like to see it try to gross me out. The only thing that would stop me from watching a film would be if I heard actual animals were hurt in it. Uh, well, like Faces of Death. 
the scene with the monkey. Yes, yeah. I'm not watching that. I'm not. Nope. I, I don't right. know. Just the idea of what human or centipede is holocaust. is pretty gross. Yeah. So I refuse to watch it. Uh, <laughs> but you know, just uh, getting back to the idea of of women in these films. What did you think about all this controversy then uh, over the last couple of months with the release of the new Ghostbusters film with the all female cast and people were against the movie and that turned into if you were against it, that meant you were sexist. And you know, what what, what were you thinking as uh, all this controversy was swirling around the film? I don't know. Donald Trump's um, the one of the presidential candidates. That's all I can say. Yeah, I, I don't even understand why there's a controversy. It's ridiculous. I, 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 I'm horrified that people have been harassing the film stars in the way they've been harassing them. I mean, it's just so I, many women are harassed online anyway and um, chased out of that virtual community for daring to speak up. Um, it happens in the gaming community, and you know, it's happening with things like this. And I'm just, I'm, I'm curious, actually. But I've stayed, I mean, I was against the movie from the beginning, and I have, you know, always said that I'm against it because I didn't think that it needed to be remade. I didn't That's care that it was... That's a point. That it yeah. doesn't matter there was an all-female cast, and I think the reviews have kind of proven that, I, you know, that approach was justified. Everybody says the movies are pretty much a total crap fest. So Yeah, and I've seen that with a lot of remakes, and that's a, that's a legitimate criticism, but I, I'm just... I want to say bewildered, but I'm not um, bewildered at all the fury directed towards the female stars because they are female. Um, wow. Was was there ever um, in your mind, just getting to the idea of remakes, we, you know, we see a lot of remakes in horror. More than anything, I think it becomes that thing that people just go to. And it's good when they can take, a, take it and make a continuation. You know, like, for example, yeah. I, I thought the Ash vs. Evil Dead series, TV series, was great. And you yeah. can kind of jump on that and carry it on. But have you ever seen a remake of a horror film that you thought was actually better than the original? Um trying to think. I mean, I, I am a big fan of the remake of 19, Night of the Living Dead that Savini did. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's better than the you original, mean sex but I think it yeah. adds a lot to it. Um, I liked other remakes in the past as well. Um, I haven't seen the Ghostbusters one, but yeah, most of them are pretty pointless. Like the ones that Rob Zombie made, like his remake of Halloween. It's almost, oh, it's almost shot by shot. Yeah. The same thing. And what was up with that remake of Psycho? I mean, that was literally not just shot by shot, a remake of um, what Hitchcock did. But, I mean, you know, things down to how the character Norman switches his butt back and forth when he goes up the stairs in the house. And you have a much a Vince Vaughn who was much larger than Anthony Perkins, who's nevertheless able to convincingly pull off that character. Um, I forget who played um, played um, Marion. I think it's somebody who used to be married to Ellen DeGeneres. But the way she's yeah, filmed, she and looks, Hays, yeah, yeah, she looks exactly like the actress who played Marion in the original film. Um, I don't know why that film was even made. Well, one, I don't know what the point was. One vote from the chat room is for the uh, for the Evil Dead remake. They said that that I was love actually the Evil Red Dead remake. I thought that added a lot to it. And I think that, you know, well, I mean, if you look at it, too, wasn't Evil Dead 2 just a remake of Evil Dead 1, too? Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I I, I think that, you know, sometimes there can be ones that are are good and that bring more to the table. And some of them turn into, you know, just ridiculous. And we spent a lot of time here on Spooky South Coast talking about Amityville. And I'd love to get your opinion on Amityville, both the the quote-unquote true story and what it's turned into in pop culture. 
Well, I mean, you know, it's it's always been a piece of folklore, really. It's a piece of folklore um, that somebody, you know, that was able to take and make into um, a story that was scary enough to convince people to, Jay Anson was able to get the publisher able to convince people to buy this book, and then they made it into a scary movie, and it became this gigantic franchise. Um, and I'm more interested in that, how um, stories like that develop and travel. Um, it's like a, local, a couple of local stories we have here about hauntings in Louisiana. And one is about the Myrtle's Plantation in St. Francisville. And I've spent the night there. It's a bread and breakfast. And they, they tell you um, all of the stories about the plantation and what supposedly happened there. Um, the slave, Chloe, she was once a favored slave. And she was afraid she was going to lose favor with her master, who was her lover. And so she was caught listening at the doors one day to, to see if her master was planning anything bad for her because he tired of her and when she was caught she was punished um, by, by her master ordering her ear cut off so she always wore a term to hide it and so in order to um, exact her revenge on the family when she was in the kitchen she was told to bake a birthday cake for one of the master's children and she put only angry leaves in it and she poisoned the entire family and so according to legend um, the slaves were so horrified by what she did and afraid of what might happen to them, too. They, they, they murdered her and threw her body in the river, and she was never found. And so, of course, the Myrtle's Plantation is supposedly haunted by the ghost of old Chloe, who um, can be supposedly seen with the children she killed in this one photograph they display. Um, and, you know, there are other ghosts in there, too, like um, ghosts of the mistress, who can be seen in the mirror because it wasn't properly covered during um, the wake for um, her and her children, and so her spirit entered the mirror. All this is BS. This family, the, the um, Myrtle's Plantation was owned by the same family until sometime in the 80s, I think, when it was bought by um, another family from Texas who turned it into... Um, a place where you can go spend the night and get a scary story, and they've got a really nice restaurant out there. And suddenly, this story that nobody can document is perpetuated. There's no, there's no historical evidence of the existence of the slave um, Chloe, um, the original owner of the plantation, um, Mr. Woodruff, was supposedly not one of those masters to visit the slaves' quarters and have his way with his female slaves. So all of this is just made up, but it's blossomed into this huge story. People go there, and they claim they've seen things, and they're terrified, and it's it's amazing. Well, there, and then you have, I was going to say, I read about Myrtles in a, in a great book called Haunted Objects, Stories of Ghosts on Your Shelf. But oh, cool! <laughs> I'm just, I'm I've just, I'm just throwing in a plug. There. I'm throwing in a plug for the book Chris and I wrote together. Uh, but the cool. the um, what I. But, you know, getting with the Myrtle story, one of the things that, you know, we always talk about here is that great line from uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, when legend becomes fact, print the legend. And I think that that becomes kind of the, especially with that case in particular. Well, that's Amityville for sure. And, you know, that legend was also perpetuated by um, the Warrens. Ed and Elizabeth Warren, the famous paranormal investigators who are becoming more famous now due to James Wan who's actually made them into fictional characters that are showing up in a lot of films. Radio. 
Yeah, they uh, they certainly have made it into a, a cottage industry. But in terms yeah. of some of the the more fictionalized stuff, I mean, Stephanie, there was a question in the chat room uh, that asked about that. Yes, they would like to know how you feel about the old masters of horror, like um, our local star Lovecraft. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm quite fond of him, um, and I've taught some of his stuff in my classes, including um, Herbert West Reanimator, which is a uh, you know it's not one of um, his finest tales, but uh, I like to use it as kind of a, a blending of the Frankenstein story into the zombie narrative. And, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he's just got a completely different mythos going that you don't see with, with other um, writers, this idea of cosmic dread, that there's just something down there, that the gods hate us. They don't really like us very much. It's, it's kind of like Ridley Scott's follow-up to Alien. I do think that there's some touches, though, of all of these, you know, all of these authors, Lovecraft, Poe, they all kind of embed something into the br- the brains of all those who come later on. Um, and, and I think, I mean, I, I, there's no secret to anybody who uh, listens to the show. I'm a huge Stephen King fan. Uh, Chris yeah. is a huge Stephen King fan. And to me, he's kind of, you know, just as I think Stranger Things is kind of a, an homage to all of the influences that you know, led to the creation of that. I think that Stephen King is the collection of all the influences that uh, he read and that inspired him. And so I, I feel like he's kind of the the person. The you can look at him as the the cultural touchstone to make horror become something even more than it was before. Well, I read somewhere too that he's kind of actually the father of the horror genre, and that when his publishing house saw how popular Carrie had become, suddenly they had a breakout imprint for horror. And before that, horror fiction was kind of lumped in with other fantastic fiction, with fantasy, sometimes even science fiction. Um, but King made this breakout where horror was a genre of itself, and still, you know, horror is kind of a bastard genre. It doesn't get a lot of respect. The only genre I can think of that gets less respect to horror is porn. I have friends who work in porn studies. Um, uh, uh, but, thank you for putting the word studies at the end of that. I was wondering where we were about to go with the No, really? Real, no, they work in porn studies. That's a thing. We don't have it here. Oh, but uh, they, No, I believe it. I just was. I yeah. thought you were just going to leave it at you have friends that work at porn. I was going to be like, well, I don't know how to follow that up with another question. <laughs> well, I might have friends who do that too. I don't know. They haven't told me about it. But no, they write about porn. <laughs> I did that so. once for fifty bucks an article. It was uh, it was actually one of my favorite jobs I ever had. Writing about porn. I reviewed porn DVDs uh, very early oh. on in the existence of the internet. Yes, excellent. It was yeah. Uh, well, and that's why the internet exists, right? The only problem is I couldn't really write full reviews because I only watched it a few minutes at a time. So that was the problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go that. I had to. T- I had to go there with that joke. <laughs> We did. We did have the. We did have the. Uh, you know the Jennifer's body reference earlier in the show, which might yeah. might have been the first such reference on Spooky South Coast in ten years. But uh, one of the one of my favorite things about uh, horror movies and about the fact that uh, when these characters take on a meaning, they, you know, these characters pop off the screen for a lot of people, especially the villains, uh, the antagonists in these films. They become something more. And we've seen that happen with so many of these, you know, horror movie villains, or in some cases, you could almost call them the heroes of the film. But, you know, when, when Freddy Krueger becomes more than just a, a movie character and becomes something kids are actually having nightmares about when they go to sleep. I mean, this, oh, it, it can supersede. Kind of cuddling now. 
Oh, I had I a know. student in class about 10 years ago told me when he was little, which was probably like five minutes ago, I don't know, he had a Freddy Krueger nightlight or a Freddy Krueger lamp or something that was by the side of his bed, and it always comforted him. Hey, to each their own, but... Uh, <laughs> But these characters, like, they can have a life of their own that exists kind of... So you can create a mythology with a character that's totally fictional that becomes the real true thing of nightmares. Oh, very much so, yeah. I mean, you can't do that with... I mean, how many people are sitting at home saying, oh, gee, I really fell in love with, you know, Woody Allen after seeing his character in whatever movie? You know, that doesn't happen. It's, it doesn't have the same effect that horror seems to. It's a much more guttural, uh, much more basic reaction to what you're seeing. Yeah, exactly. Is there and, any- you know, you either love the character or you hate the character or I don't know. Listen, I hate to, to, to go down what I think is a cheesy question route, but I think we can kind of go with it a little bit in the terms of this discussion. I hate like listening to sports radio and they're like, well, who would you put on your Mount Rushmore of football? <laughs> but I'm going to ask you, who would you put on the Mount Rushmore of horror films if you had to pick four? Some people look at the Universal Monsters. Some people look at the 80s and 70s slasher flicks. Who would be your, your Mount Rushmore of horror? And it could be oh, that's, fictional that's characters, it could question. be authors, it could be whoever you would want to put on there. It might have to be directors and, you know, oh gosh, this is a hard question. Of course, you know, Romero and Carpenter, and this is just a really heavily male, unfortunately, and Western list, but um, Romero, Carpenter, maybe, maybe Lucky McKee, and I'm trying to think about somebody else, and she's, I'm blanking on this. But, you know, films, I would say you absolutely have to see Night of the Living Dead, of course, because that's just so influential. Um, several of the early Universal Studios um, horror films, because they were, you know, they were really the founding texts of Monsters Now. So I would include James Whale's Frankenstein, Todd Browning's Dracula. Um, I would include White Zombie, which isn't very well known, but that's like the first zombie film ever. Um, I'd include the 1944 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and I think the 1944 Wolfman. Um, there's the Mummy. So you've got all of those, and Hammer Studios plays with them later on. But those are the founding ones. I think you got to put then, Browning's Freaks in there too, though, because that kind of made horror oh, I love normal. Freaks, yeah, you know that I kind love of made freaks. it like you could and actually I hate it when I show that film. Oh, of course, yeah. But you could look at that as being in the movie where you say, "Wait a minute, maybe we can be scared of things that actually are real." Well, the things we ought to be scared of, according to that movie, are possibly the things in the mirror. Hmm. Or uh, I mean, those are the real monsters and freaks, are the normal people. Yeah, you're you're afraid of uh, you're afraid of what it what it is that resides inside of us, uh, exactly. and what can come to the surface. Same with The Walking Dead. I mean, that's what you're really afraid of. You're afraid of what people will do when their backs are against the wall. Yeah, it's much easier to kill the zombies than some of those humans. It's just and, yeah, that's what you really have to be afraid of. See, this is the stuff that I, I love breaking all this down, and because I I will watch a horror movie, and you know I will probably more more thought provoking things will happen to me after watching that than watching like a good documentary. And oh, absolutely, me too. There's just not enough people to discuss this with, so you know I'm I'm going to friend request you on Facebook and harass you all the time when I'm watching horror. Oh, movies. that's awesome! Yeah, because I I really torment my friends after I've seen something I'm really excited about, and I drive them crazy. So. I'm in my favorite coffee shop right now, and one of my students in my horror and gender class works here, and I just bended her, bent her ear about um, that Marvel Hornets movie I've just seen. It would be really good using your thesis, you know. You really need to watch this. <laughs> I must have talked to her for five minutes while the customers were backing up. <laughs> there does seem to be, though, um, 
I don't want to say an undercurrent because I think it's kind of becoming more of a, a mainstream thing. But there are a lot of people out there now, both writers and and directors, uh, people who want to try to take horror into a different direction, and they want to try and take it into a direction where. You know, it's not about whatever special effects you can put in or whatever kind of jump scares you can come up with. People really want to play with your mind and, and mess with your mind when scaring you these days. They do. They do. And I think that's what Mental Horror does as well. Um, in another film of a couple of years, I really like Unfriended. Unfriended is interesting because it, it follows a lot of the um, classic ideas of Greek drama. Everything takes place in one setting and on one day. And the setting is um, the computer screen of one character. So, you know, it was ahead of its time in that way. There's not much of a plot to it. It's just typical slasher film, but the way that film is told is just so groundbreaking. See, I saw it on my on-demand, and I, I thought about watching it, and I was like, nah, I don't know, but if, if you recommend it, then I'll have to check it out. I think it's worth, worth watching. I really do. Um, and I'd put it up there with something like It Follows. Well, there is uh, there is also a new horror, t- and we were talking about how horror can kind of work its way into TV now, and even network television has embraced it. Um, of course, you know, successful shows like American Horror Story that's going to make the network say, "Well, what can we do to get onto this bandwagon?" But uh, this this oh, fall, Fox- I love American Horror Story. It's the best thing ever, and I'm just going to forget about that bad season American Horror Story freak show. See, I watched Sorry. that one. I didn't dislike it, but I didn't think it was all that great. I didn't watch the Coven one. And I didn't watch uh, the Hotel. Coven is my favorite, although I really like Hotel 2. And I actually like the first one, Murder House, an awful lot. And um, the second one is interesting as well with the uh, as- Asylum. Mm-hmm. I really love the actors that um, they're using in that series. They're just, oh, God, they're so talented, especially Dennis O'Hare, who this past season played a transgender character. And he just he just breaks your heart. Well, I think that that is kind of that success has led to other networks picking up on it, and and this fall Fox is going to have a series based on The Exorcist, which yeah, uh, we'll watch that. It's it's going to yeah. start our our local girl, our hometown girl, uh, Gina Davis, as uh, oh. as the mom, and but that's one of those stories where I mean, you look at that, I you know the idea of taking The Exorcist and putting it on TV. People will look at that and hate it before they've even seen it, and they'll say, "Why would you mess with what might be, you know, the greatest horror movie of all time? Why would you decide to to mess with that?" We saw what happened with the two uh, Exorcist prequels that came out oh, that essentially yeah, competed with each other. One was bad. Yeah. I thought one was good. But I mean, oh, the Exorcist was one of those forbidden films when I was a kid. It's not that my parents would forbid me to see it, but my best friend, her parents were very religious. And she wasn't allowed to go see it because the rumor going around then was if you saw it, you'd get possessed by the devil or something like that. Did you? And she, well, I don't know. Everybody probably thought I was already possessed by the devil. So <laughs> it's a moot question. But. Well, but it was also one of those things, too, where, I mean, that's, we've talked about this in the past. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago with George Case. That's the best word of mouth you can get for a movie like that. Yeah, I know, right? And they're not going to do anything to stop it. somewhere? Yeah. The worst. I, mean, I think that really helps something like I Spit on Your Grave achieve its cult status, which I love that film, and I love showing that in class. I love watching the reactions of my students um, in that penultimate scene where she takes her final revenge. And, you know, when you have that 20-minute rape scene, that's the most disturbing rape scene I've ever seen, um, 
when I teach it in the gender and horror film class, usually I'll have more women than men, like a lot more women than men, and the men start nervously laughing, and they look around and realize, oh, crap, I'm in a room full of women. I better not laugh. Well, when she takes her revenge in that final scene, the girls cheer and laugh and clap, and the men, the men turn white and cringe. See, I, I think that, you know, part of that is that, you know, you look at a, a class that focuses on gender studies, I think you're going to have... Uh, the idea of going in, you know, gender studies and horror movies. I think a lot of people probably go into that thinking that the the role of the woman is diminished in horror. You know, she's always the screaming victim, the scream queen. But I, I mean, I can never get over the idea. You know, even going back to you know Jamie Lee Curtis and and some of the films she was in, D D Wallace, and you know, these are women who, when I was a kid, I saw them as very strong female characters in movies. I didn't see Very them. As, so. yeah. They weren't uh, shrinking violets in the face of this, this challenge. No, they're not. Uh, but the difference between um, Jamie Lee Curtis and Camille Keaton in her film is um, I Spit on Your Grave was actually banned. Not, not because of the nudity, not because of the graphic 20-minute rage scene, but because of the graphic nature of her revenge, hmm. which I think is really interesting. You know, nothing else is going to be banned in the United States due to its violence. How does the it's remake of that enough. compare? I think the remake's pretty good, but the thing that amazes me about it is, wow, that sister can really rig up some elaborate equipment for revenge just on the fly. And I suppose I wouldn't be, uh, you know, I'd be remiss uh, if in the final moments of the program here I didn't talk with you, kind of taking this out of the idea of, of fictional horror and kind of brought it into the... I guess the quasi real world of reality television and what we've seen with the rise of the paranormal shows, uh, over the oh, last yeah. 10 years and, and what that means both for the topic and the genre overall and what that means for the role of women in particular. Well, that's particularly related to ghosts too, by the way, because most of those paranormal shows are about detecting ghosts, either, um, debunking them or, um, saying, oh, they're real, they're real, there's a ghost everywhere, like with ghost hunters. I mean, there's a there's a South Park parody of that where they see a ghost everywhere and they pee themselves because of it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the ghost, when I started the book about the ghost, I, I sat down with some um, colleagues of mine, and one of them was a professor of folklore, and he said the ghost is the only monster that people believe are real. They believe it's real. They might not admit that to everybody, but they believe the ghosts are real. So I think that's why you're seeing all these paranormal um, shows, both to debunk things and, and, you know, things like John Edward crossing over where, um, you know, people like the idea of these mediums and um, their ability to put them in touch with their dead relatives. You know, people like Teresa Caputo on Long Island Medium, who just basically harasses people on the streets. And, hey, you! I talked to your dead grandma. She got a message for you. I mean, I, I, I also I know that we were having you on talk about the book Ghosts in Popular Culture and Legend, and we've kind of talked about everything else included too. But ah, oh, that's fine. Uh, I mean. F- I also think that a lot of, you know, working in the paranormal community, and that's who, you know, a, a bulk of our audience is, you know, they will complain about the way that women are kind of just used as ghost bait on some of these investigation shows, and that they aren't really given a, a pro- you know, they're subservient to the men in a lot of these programs. They are, and that's interesting, because um, if you know anything about American spiritualism, which was a 
very, very um, big religion in 19th century United States, and it, it went to other countries. Women were kind of at the center of that. American spiritualism um, allowed women to um, speak in public in a way that they weren't normally allowed to speak, and they were able to speak as spirit mediums. And so when they were possessed by the spirit, they could speak all kinds of truths because they were possessed. Maybe truths about women's condition, um, truths about um, the morality of slavery that they couldn't stand up and say otherwise. And it gave women a position of power. And spiritualism kind of fell into disrepute um, because you had a lot of charlatans who were claiming to be mediums and charging a lot of money and putting on performances saying, oh, I'm going to put you in touch with your dead relatives. And um, people like Harry Houdini on this continent um, really just put the nail in the coffin of spiritualism with debunking these mediums over and over again and proving that their abilities were spurious. But women have always been seen as the appropriate vehicle of spirits because, to put it bluntly, women have more holes in their body than men. And also, um, mediumship and possession kind of mimic pregnancy. So you see women being possessed way more often than you do men. Hmm. Very interesting. I never thought of it that way. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's interesting that in a lot of these shows, it's men, especially men with their scientific apparatuses that are debunking things or serving as mediums themselves and kind of silencing women. And when women are presented, um, like Teresa Caputo, um, it's kind of, you know, I mean, it's like, I don't like, but like some of these other shows I've gradually seen, like Real Housewives of whatever place you want to name. Well, we, we only have about uh, two minutes left in the show. Let everybody know where they can get Ghosts in popular, popular Culture and Legend, as well as some of your other works. Well, you can get them all on Amazon. I'll tell you that right now. That's where I get everything. Always the best place Ghosts to go. In, yeah, Ghosts in, uh, in Popular Culture and Legend should be available um, by the end of the year. We had a few production delays, but, um, yeah, go out and buy it. If you, tell your library to go out and buy it for you so you can go look at it. It's a good reference for it. Um, I wish it was twice the size it was because the ghost is such a huge figure and I felt that myself and my co-author weren't really able to do the genre the justice it deserves because we had to try to select representative um, representative examples of this trope and it's just, wow, there's so many things to choose from. And so uh, where can people follow you if they want to follow along with uh, all of your work and research online? Um, they can probably follow me on Facebook, actually. Right. They're looking for me, I'll friend them. All right. Well, uh, make I sure you... I have a website, but I, I haven't had a website for a while, and I think I told you in email about the only thing um, I've got right now is a foster dog who needs a home, so... Well, we can maybe help you with that, too, so we'll be glad to help spread the word. Well, fantastic. All right, well, thank you very much, Dr. June Pulliam, for joining us tonight. We look forward to talking to you more down the line in the future. I'd be happy to talk with you more in the future. And next time we won't bother you when you're trying to, you know, do something else on a Saturday night. No, no, I usually go here. If I, I stay home, you'd hear dogs barking in the background. Uh, well, you know, that comes sometimes adds to the uh, air. You know, they could be the Hound of the Baskervilles. We don't know. Well, it might be. My foster dog fights with my dogs, so it's, it's really noisy. They're small, yappy dogs. All right, well, thank you very much, and we'll talk to you real soon. Thank you. Take care. And uh, that is, again, Dr. June Pulliam. That does it for tonight's show. Uh, We will be back next week. Next week is at 9 o'clock 
Red Sox game, I believe. So we'll be broadcasting completely over YouTube, but we'll come here and we'll do it. We'll broadcast over YouTube, so you're going to want to tune into the show that way. Even if you're listening on WBSM, you know, you can keep your game on your radio, keep the Red Sox on your radio, and watch Spooky South Coast on your computer by going to SpookySouthCoast.com or YouTube.com slash user slash Spooky South Coast. Uh, and, of course, every episode is put up online as well. Make sure you watch out for those clips on social media during the course of the week and get involved with the discussion with us as well. And I think we're trying to get Jim Harold on next week, but we'll have some more information on that later on. Until then, for Matt, for Matt, for Chris, for Stephanie, we want you all to stay spooktacular.